welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Well, hello, hello. Another uh, Knock On Podcast in the works. Uh, appreciate everyone being a little bit patient here. Uh, just returned back from a pretty cool weekend trip, turkey hunting. I went to Nebraska. It was my first time ever making a trip there. I was trying to take advantage of their early turkey season and uh, teamed up with my good buddy Justin Hackett, uh, one of the knock-on staff members from the show. And uh, we just kind of went out there and knocked on some doors, talked to a few friends who knew friends and found an awesome place to uh, turkey hunt. Uh, had a really good family, uh, farming family out there that allowed us to go on their land and and uh, actually created a really good friendship too. It was, it was a super fun hunt. We got three turkeys between the two of us. I shot two and Justin had one. Uh, they got a snowstorm the day that we were down there. We kind of went in blind and built a bale blind, uh, set it up, kind of put it in the position that we thought we we should be. And lo and behold, at, at dark, uh, like every tree above the blind filled up with turkeys going to roost. So that next morning, we knew we had to get in super, super early. So we ended up... Uh, going out about five in the morning to get in our blind in the pitch black and it was i think about nine degrees when we went out crunchy snow and we got in the blind we didn't even have time to set up the decoys or couldn't set up the decoys because we could hear all the turkeys on the limbs above us so we just had to kind of make do but what made it super rough was i actually caught like a 24-hour flu bug uh in the middle of the night I woke up and I was literally bent over sick and uh, made plenty of trips to the bathroom and kind of mustered up all the strength I had to go out that morning at 5 a.m. and sat in the blind with my hands in my head and uh, was really doing my best to try to make it through the day and you know as soon as it's cracked sunlight there was so many gobbles it was unbelievable the amount of gobbles we heard and uh you know turkey started pitching down and it was you know for any of you that are on the facebook page i kind of posted that quick little slow motion clip of of my shot but you know the gobblers literally came down and were strutting all around us and one big one came walking in to the call uh, he wasn't strutting, but you know, I was super sick and Justin just said, well, here comes one, just take this. So I kind of took a deep breath and pulled my bow back, made the shot. And literally as soon as I seen the bird do the flip, I just put my hands on my head and put my ha- my head back down in my lap. And, uh, we sat there calling some more birds and another bird, I guess about 30 minutes later, started working in and by then Justin had gave me the camera and I was going to film him get his gobbler and this gobbler was coming in he was about 20 yards away um, out the side window and uh, I was going to try to film him out the side window so I kind of barely slid the window down and then as I was trying to focus the camera 
out the window, uh, the turkey started gobbling. And right about the time he got his gobble out, I actually had to rip the window down in the blind so that I could lose my lunch out the window. So I sat there heaving out the window, totally scared everything away. Uh, it was absolutely miserable. Uh, that, uh, that was not the way that I wanted to start that turkey hunt. So I was definitely under the weather, but, uh, in the end we stayed in the blind from five in the morning till about, I guess about seven at night was when I shot my second bird and we shot Justin's first bird, uh, at about somewhere just before noon. So, you know, we got a turkey about every five hours, I guess. So all in all, it's going to make a pretty awesome episode. I'm going to spare everybody the expense of seeing me be totally sick, but you know, looking through, uh, I made a post on Facebook what you guys wanted to hear about. Several several of you wanted to hear about turkey hunting. One of you wanted to hear about my turkey hunt to Nebraska. So that was it. We uh, spent a lot of time in a blind at about 9 degrees, freezing. Felt like I had frostbite. uh, Throwing up out the window and battling a flu and a migraine. But by the time it was all said and done, we had three really good birds and uh, some really cool footage. I had a great, uh, great experience meeting some great people and also uh, having a good trip with my buddy Justin. But uh, actually, that hunt, um, just so we can take a little bit of information back from this whole experience, that hunt, I took two different arrows with me. I took the uh, Easton Carbon Bowfire and also the Easton Carbon Nemesis. Uh, Both of those arrows are new arrows this year that uh, a lot of people have been asking me about, so I got a couple dozen in, and and, uh, I shot them. Uh, I think last Thursday or Friday I shot them, and they shot almost comparable because I decided to shoot the carbon bowfire with a 125-grain 2-inch cut Ulmer Edge, and then I decided to shoot, uh, and that weighs about 9.6 grains per inch. So uh, then I decided to shoot uh, the Nemesis, which I think is about 10.1 grains per inch, at least in my spine. Um, I decided to shoot that one with a 100-grain head so that uh, the two of them would be fairly close in overall weight so I wouldn't have to worry about having different pin gaps but uh, both of the arrows shot really well. Um, it's it's definitely a toss-up, too. I love both those shafts, and I think they're a great choice for anyone out there considering getting some. Um, but I guess uh, the toss-up is the graphics are by far the coolest I've seen on the Carbon Bowfire. But uh, the Nemesis shot just a little bit better for me. So um, I guess I'm not totally sure why it could be because you know since easton's only making um those available in like a 330 or 340 spine i'm running right on the edge of being too weak for me so i actually have to turn my poundage down just a little bit on my carbon spider so that i can uh, make those still shoot well and i think maybe since i shot that 125 grain two-inch cut Ulmer Edge out of the Bowfire, they probably were getting pushed a little bit into the weak uh, side of things. So that could be why 
my left or right groups were just a little bit better with uh, with the Nemesis, but either way, they were uh, they were shooting good. And honestly, I only got to shoot them out to 40 yards because the weather has just been a nightmare. Lots of wind here in the Midwest over the past week, so I've been battling that. But uh, both of the shafts killed a turkey and uh, shot well. I was shooting. Um, I was actually shooting our knock-on quick fletch, which we'll soon have available um, online. But uh, they had the the Max Hunter veins, the AAE Max Hunters, um, which I think is just a perfect vein for uh, an expandable type broadhead or a or a short compact broadhead. Um, I think the 2.6 is still my all-time favorite when it comes to hunting veins. I like the 2.6 just because it gives me the versatility of shooting a fixed blade broadhead or a mechanical without having too much drag um i can still I, I can get a little bit better clearance actually because it is a little bit shorter profile some of these real high profile veins you really have to be careful when you're indexing your knocks so that you're not getting contact because what i found with mine is with these high profile veins if i shoot my cock vein up um, which is pretty typical with a fallaway arrow rest my inside right vein gets a little bit of contact every now and then on the inside of my riser. Um, so I actually turned my arrows to where my cock vein is almost out. So it's, you know, it's a little bit lower on the right side when I'm looking down the back of the shaft, but it allows uh, my arrow to have perfect clearance. And, you know, and if you're ever kind of having the odd arrow here and there that gets a little squirrely when it comes out of the bow, sometimes it could be, you know, especially with these high profile veins, you might be getting just a little bit of contact somewhere. So, you know, try rotating your knocks just a little bit here and there and see if you can clear up some of that arrow flight. And honestly, some people that are having issues um, with paper tears, you know, people say I have a left tear and I can't get rid of it. A lot of times that left tear that you can't get rid of, even when you're moving your left, your rest, left and right a lot of times that could be due to a contact issue and with these short high profile veins sometimes if you're if you are touching the inside of your riser or your cables as it goes by you're going to get that left kick so you know my and i guess just to talk a little bit about turkeys um, we're going to talk about several things today because i've actually uh, copied and pasted all your guys's questions and answers i'm not going to be able to go through them all some of them i know that we're going to be doing in the future anyway so i'll kind of touch on that briefly when i get to them um, but you know i am going to talk turkeys for a little bit and then uh, we're going to get into some of these other topics but when it comes to turkeys you know there's several things for me one um since since i started hunting out of a bail blind you know it's it's like doubled my my success for sure both with whitetails and turkeys it just seems like everything is just completely blind to those things they have no idea i mean we went in we actually set up on the edge of a cow lot um a lot of these turkeys were coming out into this cow pasture kind of picking around in some of the uh the cow pies so you know, they, that's why they were kind of roosting and doing a lot of their strutting along the edge of that. So we, we set up our bail blind just inside the fence um, so that we were, you know, not going to get harassed by the cows. 
but uh you know we had we had several groups of hens come within three yards of the blind um you know without even hesitating so you know having the right blind and especially with turkeys you just want one that doesn't have any movement you don't want one that's flapping around you know out there it was super windy so if we would have been in a blind that had any kind of flapping fabric you know that really decreases your opportunity with with turkeys and deer really they just don't go for that for sure Um, then from there uh, you know last year on one of our turkey episodes I talked about getting high quality decoys for me it took me a long time before I was willing to invest in a really high quality turkey decoy but I think two years ago um, I bought my first Dave Smith hen decoy And I just couldn't believe how many turkeys would just come into it and not hold up and stand out there at 50 yards and, you know, kind of stage up and want you to close that distance. I mean, everything just seemed to come in. And then towards the end of the season last year, I decided to get the Jake. Um, One, I couldn't find it for the whole year. I finally found it at a Shields store, like, with a few weeks left of the season. And I bought that and could not believe how... Well, that combination worked with a Jake and a hen. And then this year, I went ahead and got the bedded hen, the submissive hen. And man, the dominant birds do not like to see a subdominant bird uh, over the top of a, of a bedded hen. That's just, they do not like that. So with the realism that these decoys have, it's just been a killer setup for me. I mean, I've killed turkeys in the past. Um, and I've had, you know, I've had success turkey hunting, but you know, for me, and honestly, as much as everyone continues to think that I, that I have, uh, unlimited time off, you know, I've probably, I probably hunt less than a lot of you out there. Honestly. I mean, I try to, I try to pick and choose my days when I go and I try to, to really do a lot of my research before I go somewhere and try to make sure I'm going into an area that has, you know, good numbers of animals and pick the right time. And, uh, you know, I try to get in and get out, you know, like this weekend, you know, I'm just like the rest of you. I, I treated this turkey hunt no different than, you know, than any other day. I literally left, um, I left about noon on Friday, uh, drove out there, had a few hours in the evening to kind of see this farm and set up the blind right before dark so that we could get in it the next morning. And, and, uh, and I was, you know, as much as I wanted to hunt all day on Sunday, you know, we hunted the morning on Sunday and then, uh, came back home. You know, I needed to be home so I could obviously, uh, start work today and, and get stuff done. So, you know, for turkeys, for me, making those investments in some of those products, you know, I, you can, you may still have success without them, but time is money to me. I don't like to, uh, I'd rather have a hunt really work well all the time rather than spend three days looking at birds hang up and not come in before I finally find one that that's convinced that everything's good to go and comes in. Then from there, uh, with turkeys anyway, I really prefer to have, a hard hitting arrow because I think what really reduces your track job on a turkey is delivering a lot of impact when you hit them. So I like to shoot um, a large cut expandable. I also uh, like to shoot a heavy arrow 
and I always try to aim, you know, if they're coming on head on, obviously you gotta, you gotta just kind of aim right there at the right below where the beard goes in. But if they're sideways, I try to just take them right through the drumsticks and pin their legs together. A lot of times I don't get pass-throughs on turkeys because obviously they kind of get taken off their feet. It's kind of like shooting a pillow. They absorb a lot of the impact. Um, and then also with that bigger cut, you know, you're just not going to get the penetration as well. And I, I like, I think you, you reduce the opportunity of that bird flying off when you shoot a heavy arrow with a big cut and especially if it stays in them because things just you know they just don't take that kind of an impact they're down right there so you know that's kind of my combination for turkey hunts that's what i really like to have in my in my blinds i always wear black um just so that you're you're dark obviously they uh they pick up on any type of movement. So that's what I like about my bail blind. They stay pretty dark in there, but they've got good size windows for filming and for hunting. So that's pretty much the, the gist of it for my turkey hunt. And also a couple quick little tips for you guys. Uh, if you're going to go out and do some turkey hunting on your own, um, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can be successful. But for me, those are the ways that have, I guess reduce the amount of time that I have to be away from from home and away from the family. So I'm going to take a quick little drink of water right here and then I'm going to just start reading through some of these questions that you guys sent me through Facebook. Okay, the first question I've got here from John Michael Tussle. Uh, I recognize your name a lot. Dude, thanks for uh, always being supportive and getting involved. Um, just so you know, your question, and actually there's several of you guys um, between the John Dudley, uh, or I should just say my personal page, and the Knock on TV page, several of you asked the same question about me doing a podcast on archery fitness. You know, he said, how can I, uh, how can I be in better shape and uh, to be a better archer and what exercises for holding steady and increasing your draw rate? We're actually going to have a podcast come up pretty soon um, about that. Strategically, there's a reason why I haven't done it just yet. Um, I've got a really cool guest that's going to be part of that, um, and I, I'm not going to let you know who it is right yet. I'll just, I'll, I guess, I'll just let you guys know. You'll probably be surprised at who it is, um, but he's a longtime friend of mine. And he's actually, uh, he wanted to wait because he's got a book that should be ready to go here pretty soon. And as soon as that's ready, he's going to come on because I told him I'd like him to maybe kind of push that to you guys a little bit too because there's some great information out there. Um, When it comes to exercise, you know, I I just said this this morning to Sharon because... You know, this morning, kind of our routine, I guess, is, you know, we get, I always get up about three in the morning, sometimes four. Um, I'll handle a lot of my emails. Um, You know, I work a lot with with the foreign side of archery. So by me getting up early in the morning, I'm kind of right at the time where they're starting their day. And then uh, about seven o'clock we get little dud out of bed and we all go up and have breakfast together Um, I think that's important to get him set off for his day of school and 
Uh, make sure everybody's communicating in the morning. And then uh, when we drop him off at school, we head, we normally head to go work out. And, uh, you know, we go, well, I belong to Snap Fitness and I also belong to the Y. Uh, we all belong to the Y. So we went and had our workout. And, you know, I'm just amazed um, at how many people work out inefficiently. I mean, it's, it's kind of saddening. I mean, I sit in there and I kind of, you know, I really want to spend time with each person, just letting them know they're, they're doing things that are really not necessarily helping them at all. It's great that they're there and that they're making the commitment to go. And a lot of them are in there longer than me, but when it comes to actual efficiency of what they're doing, it's like a one out of 10. Whereas for me, I can go in there and get my workouts in 45 minutes to 50 minutes. And, you know, at least I feel it's a 10 out of 10. So I'm going to bring on a pretty cool guest here in the next few weeks. We're going to dive into some of that fitness stuff and get, you know, I really want to do it right. And I want to do a pretty in-depth episode or podcast, I should say, about that. So Stay tuned for that for sure here in the near future. I think you guys are really, really going to like it. Um, There was also a lot of you guys asking about judging yardage and also some things regarding 3D. So once again, I guess I'll just start out by saying strategically, um, there's a reason why I have not talked about that subject yet too. Um, Got a really cool friend that's going to join me here really anytime. He, he may even come by today. I don't know. Um, we're going to talk about, uh, talk about all that stuff. And I think you guys are going to really appreciate the fact that, that I waited because, uh, it's, it's definitely going to be world-class top-notch stuff. So for you 3d guys, judging guys and fitness guys, don't worry. I will get to you for sure without a doubt. So, um, Let's see, we've got TJ Ritchie was wanting me to get a little bit more in depth on the Carter evolution um, and how it improves shot execution. So, you know, we've kind of, I know you guys have really digged that side of things and several of the podcasts that we've all, already talked about have kind of dove into that. And the Carter evolution release gets brought up a lot. Um in, in my opinion, you know, I really think that's probably the best overall release for really curing people who have anticipation on a target. And then also just really teaching them what they need to feel when they execute a shot. Um, you know, years ago, and I actually watched, I watched it last weekend because someone was asking me about it and I wanted to make sure that I had talked about it in the DVD, but Years ago, I actually did a DVD for the Carter Evolution when it first came out so people understood kind of how to use it, what to think about, um, kind of what goes through your mind. It was kind of a DVD intended for people that had um, a little bit of target panic. They were trying to, um, to get used to shooting a tension or a surprise release for the first time, and uh, that... DVD kind of went through that stuff and it was for me it was like almost surreal watching it because I looked so young I didn't have any gray hair and you know I kind of had a 
some kind of cool Backstreet Boy hairdo thing going on. So it was, uh, was kind of like looking back at your high school yearbook or something. So um, the evolution, you know, I think at one time I'm going to get Jerry Carter on a podcast so that we can talk about, you know, releases, the whole, uh, I guess, evolution um, of release aids, not necessarily the evolution, but the evolution of releases and how they've come along because Jerry is, you know, pretty much uh, the release god of the industry. He has made made most of the best ones out there, in my opinion, and uh, he's a very, very close friend. Um, the Carters are almost like family to me. They are, I mean, they are an extension of my family, I guess I should just say that. Um, and I know how much they really take pride in um, staying small and focus on building a release that, you know, really has a quality that is above anything out there. And, uh, you know, the evolution was a long time process of developing that. That was something that I had asked Jerry for for years and years and he had made several different releases that were that had some really cool concepts but you know in the end I kept saying all it needs to do is be able to show people this feeling you know we need people to just understand this exact feeling and man when he made that and sent me the very first prototype and I shot it I'm just like that's it that's exactly what people need so you know, we'll dive into that evolution a little bit more. I don't want to make every podcast right now about uh, shot execution and surprise releases, but uh, we definitely will come back around to that. So <clears throat> the next question is, uh, I've got one here from Robert Wheaton. Uh, hey, man, thanks for uh, replying. Um, you wanted me to talk a little bit about D-loop adjustment. Um and I would assume probably also D-loop length. Um, you know, a lot of people, when they put their D-loops on, um, you know, and I guess just to backtrack a little bit, I really prefer to have two tied knocks, um, one above and one below my arrow knock, and then have my D-loop on the outside of each of those. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. I prefer that way, and typically my top knock um, is just um, a little bit smaller than the one that's on the bottom. I found that to work best, but what I like about having two tied knocks is just that I can take my D-loop off. I can adjust the length if I want to slightly change my draw length, and I can do that without losing my actual knock position on my arrow. You know, that was always the downside to only having one tied knock on the bottom and then a D-loop on because if you didn't make your knots exactly the same size, then you could technically change your 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 high and low knock position on your string, which then could change your impact point. Um, sometimes you could maybe not get your pinch exactly the same, so that could always that could change as well. So I do like to have two tied knocking points. From there, when it comes to D loops, I personally don't really like like pre-cutting a piece of loop material to a certain length. 
I know a lot of guys kind of pre pre cut it to a little length and then they kind of wrap it in there and then they just stretch it out. Um, for me, I've never really got the tightness and the consistency that way that I've wanted. So I typically cut about 10 inches of loop material off and then I'll tie the one side and you know, I'll pull on the short tab super hard with a pair of pliers and then I'll crunch down um, the D loop to where it's, it's as flat as possible. You know, I try not to have a, you know, the area where I guess the two pieces of D loop come out. You know, I don't like that to be really bulky and big. I like them to be as squeezed down and as compact as I possibly can. So, you know, I kind of squeeze them down and then I pull on the short tab with my, with a pair of needle nose pliers. I actually use the Easton, uh, all purpose pliers. And then, um, from there, since I've used about 10 inches of loop material to begin with, there's still about eight inches or nine inches, um, of loop material hanging out. So you can grab that with your hand and just really pull and seat that loop into position, um, when you're tying the, you know, the first side, I always tie the top side first. The other thing, when I tie my loops for a right-handed shooter, I want my loop material to be, to come off the left side of the string. When I'm looking down at my bow and I wrap my loop, um, when my loop material comes back towards me to actually make the loop, I want it on the left side of the string. And then when I go to tie off the bottom, I actually come over to the right side of the string again when you're looking down the back of the bow and what that does is since you're on the left side on one side of the string and then the right side on the other it'll naturally put a slight turn in your loop and that actually that angle is the same type of angle as when you're using a handheld release and you turn your release upside down to come to your anchor position what that does by having it on the left side of the string on one side and right side of the string on the other side it creates that natural little turn on your d loop when you're looking at it from the back and so you don't have as much twist or torque on your d loop which essentially if your d loop might be on the shorter side of things that can almost translate into torque on the string itself um, but from there you know, my personal D loops are normally around three quarters of an inch. You know, I don't really like to have a D loop that is um, too short. I don't like one that you can barely get your release into it because, you know, what I like about a D loop is the fact that, especially for a handheld release shooter, um, when you turn your hand, it allows you to put torque on the loop and not torque on the string because on a compound bow, you know, when your bow is just sitting there and you haven't pulled it back, the string has a lot of tension in it. The cables don't have as much tension, but the string, um, you know, has a lot more tension on it. But as you draw a compound bow back and then you get to full draw, the string tension is actually less. All the power is transferred into the cables. So there's an extreme amount of tension on your cables, but your string, you can actually kind of bend it with your hand. So ultimately, if you shoot a short D loop and your hand position, when you're at full draw and you're at your anchor, if your hand position is slightly more vertical than the next shot, um, if you shoot a short D loop 
then you kind of you'll start to see some variance in your accuracy because if your D loop is too short, you'll actually apply that torque, that string torque pressure onto the string itself. Whereas if you shoot a slightly longer D loop, it'll just be on the loop itself. So I shoot about anywhere from three quarters of an inch to seven eighths of an inch, depending on the bow that I'm shooting, which um, this will actually kind of segue um, into another question um, you know that I had out there and I'm trying to find it so this this question that I had picked was actually from Michael Knee and he asked me you know can you be as accurate with a shorter axle axle for target shooting um, say a 35 inch axle axle compared to like a 39 inch um, you know for anything from 18 to 90 meters and personally you know, right now, well, actually, today I'm shooting the Pro Comp uh, Elite XL, which is a little bit longer. But for the beginning part of the year, um, I was shooting the Pro Edge Elite, and I still will shoot the Pro Edge Elite. Um, and I might shoot the Pro Edge um, for some 3D shoots. I'm not quite sure yet because I haven't really had the appropriate weather to shoot both of them outdoors. But for me, I've never really been afraid of a little bit shorter bow. The one thing that I that I really always try to pay attention to is how steep the string angle gets. You know, it's not about the axle to axle length for me. You know, if the brace height is favorable, then at full draw, the string angle isn't too sharp. Um, now, if you shoot a very short brace height with a short axle to axle bow, then the string angle can get very sharp and then I do believe you start to dramatically lose accuracy. And I don't think it's because of that. You know, I know it's not because of the axle axle length. What I found for me is the further your peep sight is from your eye, the more likely you are to not be able to center everything properly and you start to get a lot more left and right, you know, variances in your groups. So I really like to have a bow that has a pretty forgiving string angle. You know, I, when it comes to rest at the corner of my mouth, you know, I like it to be able to, to go up and touch the tip of my nose without me having to really tip my head forward to go to that string. Because a lot of people won't tip their head all the way forward. So the string is actually slightly away from the tip of their nose. And then their peep sight is quite a ways away from their eye. And what you'll find is bows where the peep sight is further away from your eye, you'll find that you need to shoot a really big peep sight in order to properly center your peep in your housing. And that's a pretty good um, indicator that, you know, you're going to struggle with accuracy at those longer distances. So what I like to do with my D loops is, you know, I try to build my bows to where they always fit me the same, where they always, um, when I'm at full draw, I like the string um, to come to a stop, you know, just past the corner of my mouth, or if I have a very steep string angle or, you know, very wide string angle, like on a longer axle, axle bow, um, I might want it just a little bit in front of the corner of my mouth, but either way, I like that string to then come up and touch the corner of my lips. And then I always put the string at the dead center of the tip of my nose you know so that actually gives me four reference points when I come to full draw um, obviously I have my anchor position 
And then from there, I have the string right at the corner edge of my mouth, and I can barely feel, you know, that pressure has to be very, very light. Um, I have a slight stubble in my face, so if I can barely feel that string touching the stubble in the corner of my mouth, that's perfect. Then from there, I put the tip of my nose on the bowstring, and then obviously as I'm looking through my peep, I'm able to center my peep and my, and my sight housing. So between the anchor, corner of my mouth, tip of my nose, looking through the peep, there's four reference points on my, you know, on my full draw position. So that really helps me with my accuracy. Now, when it comes to actual loop length, if I'm shooting, um, you know, a slightly, uh, a slightly higher axle axle bow um you know i might have a a little bit uh a little bit different loop length than if i'm shooting a shorter axle axle bow you know i don't like to have to uh make the bow like for example on this 35 inch pro edge elite um when i come to full draw you know in order for me to to actually feel my anchor position and everything back there and still maintain my head position you know, my string, um, you know, it, it might have to, I might have to tip my head a lot further forward than what, what I want. So I actually have a slightly longer D loop on this shorter axle axle bow so that I can still get to my anchor position without having to make that string come further back on my face. So instead of lengthening my draw length, slightly on that shorter bow so that everything fits me right i just keep that draw length about the same and then just use the longer d loop so hopefully that helps you out you know we talked about it on another podcast but when it comes to actual loop material um, i prefer um, the d braid from bcy i like the d braid because it's a little bit softer Um, you know, if you have a release that chews up your D loops, then you'll probably want to stick with the poly braid, the number 62 poly braid from BCY. But if you have a release that isn't, you know, damaging to your D loop, then you might want to, you know, call them and get a couple pieces of that D braid and just let me know, uh, what you think about it yourself. So hopefully that, uh, answers that question, Robert. And once again, I appreciate you asking, uh, the next one I highlighted here was from Alan and uh, Alan had asked about drop away arrow rests and this is one that several of you have asked about so um, I definitely want to do a very in-depth podcast about fall away arrow rests and uh, actually I'm going to do one of those with the man himself Dan Evans Um, Dan and I you know Dan's a great archer Um, he also does a ton of experimenting So I think Dan is going to be a great guy um, to really, we can dive into not only, not only drop away arrow rest, but also some of the things that he's found. He does a lot of experimenting with different vein configurations. You know, every year he does the same thing. Um, You know, I've done them once or twice in my life and I've kind of figured out that it seems like the result in the, the, you know, the maths, so to speak, as Jane Park would say, the maths are always the same. So I don't really need to do them every year, but he does them every year. Every time he gets a new bow, he shoots new combinations to really see what is going to work best. And uh, so, you know, you can expect to have a podcast coming up with Dan to cover dropaways specifically. Uh, all right. The next question I see here that I've got highlighted is going to be, um, 
from, I guess it'd be Carrie and Shane Marsh. And uh, you guys talked or asked about um, how about up pins versus down pins or even side pins and how they affect your hold. Um, You know, for me, I've just, I've, I've never, when it came to target archery, I always, um, I always liked shooting a dot in the center of my lens. Um, you know, I, I feel like I have better left to right groups. And, uh, you know, if I guess I should say this when I'm hunting a lot of times on my hunting bows, I kind of, if I, if I have misses on my hunting bows, they're left to right. And it's, I know it's because I shoot side pins, so I can't always perfectly pick out exactly where I'm at on the target simply because those posts are blocking, you know, my visual on one part of the target. Um, And then when it comes to, to target shooting, you know, when I use an up pin, you know, it seems like for 3D, you know, if I was missing, I tended to miss high or low. And I think a lot of that too was for the times where I was using an up pin and I've used up pins and down pins. I definitely prefer an up pin much more simply because I always draw back. I do my best to put the pin on the target before I draw my bow. Um, but normally when I draw back and come to anchor and look through my peep, I find that I'm normally sitting just under the spot so it allows me to come up onto the spot and then you know engage my trigger and and obviously start executing my shot um the down pins i've just never it seems like for me anytime i start a downward motion i kind of couldn't stop going down so you know i i just didn't like coming down onto the spot and that was personal um, but then years ago, um, back when I, you know, back before I was even shooting a Sherlock scope, um, I shot a specialty archery scope and, and we had experimented with some, uh, some Zeiss lenses where we had drilled them out and, uh, put the fibers right through the center of the lens. And when we did that, my left to rights and up and downs just totally went away because I was able to, to look in the center of my glass and not have to worry about having blockage one way or another on my sight picture and um, and then once I switched to target archery I started using a very small black dot and then I would take a needle and I would dip the needle into some some white model paint and then I would drop just the smallest of white dots in the center of that black dot and what that did for me was if the target if the sun was ever directly in my face, then my pin would always, my dot would always look black. But then if the sun was ever at my back, because what I found was when I had a black dot in my scope, if the sun was ever at my back, um, sometimes it was really hard to actually see my spot. So by putting the white dot in the center, if I ever had a lot of sunlight coming directly behind my back, it illuminated that white dot so that I could instantly find it. So it worked really well on field faces. You know, if I had a lot of sun in my face, I always had a very, very visible black dot to look at. And then if the sun was ever hitting me hard in the back, I had a white dot. So that was my my pin choices. You know, for hunting, obviously I shoot... Um, you know, fixed pins. I like to shoot five and then I have full gang adjustment to be able to move the whole housing for my longer yardages. 
But uh, I do struggle a little bit with left and right, you know, with the pins that come in from the side. Okay, so let's move down here. And some of you guys, you know, asked me some, you know, there's a lot of you out there, obviously, that gave me ideas for things to talk about. And some of these things we've already covered in some of the previous podcasts. So for those of you out here who haven't uh, listened to those, I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of those first podcast because you're definitely going to hear about stabilizer setups you're going to hear um, about a couple of the different things that you that you asked about so stabilizer setups I think some people talked about arrows choices and what weight of arrows so um, but we got Michael knee here saying uh, can you be as accurate with a shorter uh, axle axle bow for target? you know, as say a longer one. And I just kind of answered your question a minute ago on that. I definitely feel like you can, you just need to make sure that you pay attention to that peep relationship, the distance from your eye, because if you can keep that peep closer to your eye, you're going to, you're going to have a lot less struggles, uh, centering up. And then, uh, I guess for this particular podcast, you know, we're running a little bit low on time here, so I might, uh, go ahead and hit stop on this one after this question and pick up uh, another podcast right after it. But uh, this last question is going to go to my man, Michael Fraley, Fraley's Big Woods. Uh, you're always asking me questions, dude, and I know you're probably the, the were the maddest this morning because you didn't have a knock on new knock-on pop, podcast to go with your morning workout in your cup of mud as you say so um, you asked a question that's a great question um, you know should you shoot with uh, both eyes open or one eyes closed and uh, you know honestly you know science tells us that if both of our eyes are open we're going to actually accept more light into our eyes and I learned years ago as a 3D shooter when you're shooting in some of those darker tunnels that if you're squinting one eye shut, your picture that you see through your peep is still pretty dang dark. So, you know, I started training myself to shoot with both eyes open, and I think it makes a big difference. It took me several years to be able to do it. I'll honestly admit, if you've got, uh, if you ever saw me on the 3D course from, you know, I guess probably 1997 to probably 2001. Um, I had to shoot a blinder over my left eye, and I did that so that I could keep my both eyes open, um, but see my left eye, for some reason, I'd kind of get a little bit of double vision on what I was looking at through my scope, and I think at the time, my eye was just, you know, both eyes were trying to focus on the sight, so I was getting a little bit of double image, so by putting that blinder in front of my left eye, um, you know, I kind of took a credit card, an old credit card, and bent it and clipped it to the front bill of my hat and then turned it so I'd get string clearance. And uh, it allowed me to keep both eyes open, and I was amazed at how brighter my sight picture was. So, you know, I'm definitely a big believer in both eyes open. If you're like me and you try it a few times and you're struggling with that double image, then look uh, at trying the blinder technique. Eventually, uh, my body just adjusted. It knew what I wanted to see. And, you know, my left eye always saw the target. My right eye saw my sight pin and everything was bright and, uh, and perfect. That was actually something that I learned from Randy Ulmer, too. I had that same conversation with him. So, 
there you go, Fraley. That's it, dude. You can uh, you can have a good start to your day tomorrow. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and wrap this podcast up, and uh, we'll pick up we'll pick up with uh, some more of these questions here for one that I'll post later this week. I just want to thank all you guys for listening to the podcast. Uh, also for supporting Knock On, you know, going on the the Knock On web store, buying a shirt or hat, definitely uh, it all adds up to helping me be able to do these. Because as you've heard, there's not any sponsors to it. I'm doing this as uh, as a service to all of you out there. So thanks everybody. Shoot good this week. Hopefully we got some good weather coming in. So we'll talk to you later. Knock On everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com